and welcome to this special edition of Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. My name is Emer Walsh and I'll be your host today. I am joined by my colleague, Rupert Watson, who a lot of you will know. Rupert is our chief economist and head of our DAA for our own client portfolios. Also, my very good friend, Rupert, welcome. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Very well. We're back seeing each other virtually. I got to got to see Rupert in person yesterday, which was which was very exciting. Well, we, 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 we struggled. We, we struggled with the the sort of the bit of what do you do? Do you shake hands? But I'm pleased to report we had a hug. But anyway, let's yeah. <laughs> a, a joyous hug. Yeah. So back back to the task at hand. Today we are discussing the outlook for 2022. Now, Rupert, we only have 20 25 minutes, so we'll be tight. But at a high level. What do you think is going to happen to the global economy over the next 12 months? At a high level, we think the global economy is going to perform well. Uh, we think that the fundamentals for the global economy are pretty good. First of all, consumers are flush with cash, having not spent a huge amount over the last 18 months. In addition to that, the labour market is very strong, which is both creating lots of new jobs in lots of places, and also leading to increased wages, uh, which we'll no doubt talk about later, but at least from a perspective of consumption as a positive. Investment, we think, is also likely to be positive on the back of businesses having to invest uh, to meet the increased demand, governments wanting to invest in new infrastructure, and both the private and the public sector having to invest in the new energy transition, uh, which is going to lead to strong demand for all sorts of things, uh, both next year, but also really uh, for the next several decades. So broadly positive on a global economic perspective, but I think inflation is probably one of the key points everyone is discussing at the moment. So thoughts on how this will play out over the next year? Yes, I think that's by far the most difficult bit of the puzzle. So I, I don't think there's a huge amount of uncertainty, fingers crossed, of course, uh, in relation to the economic outlook, in terms of economic growth. But in terms of inflation, there is a huge amount of uncertainty. Um, I completely agree with uh, what the Fed and other central bankers are saying, that much of the increases are temporary. So we've seen used car prices, for example, in the US, rise by more than 50%, and similar moves in other countries. Uh, we've seen natural gas prices here in Europe uh, jump over the last uh, 12 months or so, and up, up, up many fold, not percentages, but, but, but multiples. And I think it's pretty likely that at some point when the supply issues are resolved, when there are sufficient chips for the automakers and so on, that the prices of those things will fall back. But we have also started to see signs of things, prices going up in certain things that are, are not necessarily temporary. In particular, wage growth. We've seen wage growth rise sharply in the US, in the UK, much less so in Europe or Japan. Uh, but increasingly, I think we'll start to see that around the world. And there's no particular reason why that's temporary. I mean, best guess, not that I'm a, a used car uh, forecaster or indeed salesman, but best guess is that used car prices will fall over the next year or two. But there's no obvious reason why wage growth will fall. Wage growth, the reason why wage growth is so high is because there are lots of jobs available. So we've seen huge jump in the number of vacancies in the US and the UK. 
And it doesn't seem obvious to me why any of that is going to dissipate at any point really over the next little while. So we're looking at a pretty tight labor market for the next few years. And that might well put upward pressure on wages for some time to come. And wages are an ex extraordinarily important part of the, the economic puzzle and the inflation puzzle. Because for most businesses, wages are by far their biggest input. For us at Mercer, of course, EMA, uh, our wages is, you know, a huge, huge part of Mercer's total costs. And at a high level, about two thirds of all corporate costs. And if businesses are having to pay more for their staff and expecting inflation to be higher, then they will raise their prices uh, to their customers. And as a result, you start to see a self-reinforcing cycle of wage, higher wages, higher prices. I mean, I should stress, we don't think, and it's pretty unlikely, that we'll be going anywhere back to the 1970s or anything like that. Um, but I think the, the implication of it is that central banks may well have to move um, uh, 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 f further and faster than they're anticipating at the moment. Yeah, I, I think this inflation piece is quite interesting, particularly in the goods and services. So give you a pretty simple example. You know, I'm based in London. My, my local deli probably... It's an overpriced deli, I'd admit that, but it increased prices by about 20% across the board. This was a couple of months ago. Avocado? Now, I, I won't tell you the name of the sandwich, but we'll keep saying <laughs> Sorry. that. <laughs> so now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, so yeah, goods have increased, increase in prices across the board by about 20%. Now, consumers have been very tolerant to this price increase. And I think that goes back to wage inflation, but also they've higher savings accumulated. So I think this temporary market chat, I'm not sure I fully agree with it. And I think central banks may need to step in sooner and move quicker. I think, yes, I agree with that. And, you know, I, normally one should be careful of anecdote, but I've been speaking to lots of colleagues about their experience in their local deli or their gym or their coffee shop or the pub or the restaurant. And as you say, prices are going up. Uh, and also, as you say, people seem pretty relaxed about, about paying for it. One shouldn't forget, however, that there are deflationary forces out there. Uh, a lot of technology is still being developed at a rapid rate. Uh, and I think we will see increased automation uh, across across the global economy. And while some parts of the globalization bit uh, is, is, is impaired, so US-Chinese relations, for example, and there are other bits that are still growing. And so one shouldn't forget the, the disinflationary forces that are still around in the, in the economy. But ultimately, uh, I agree that I think that inflation is a, is a policy choice and central bankers can essentially engineer whatever inflation rate they want, not over the next 12 months, but over the next several years. And I think that ultimately the Fed, the Bank of England, and obviously the ECB, and we could talk about Japan, are all committed to having inflation at a relatively low level. And therefore, they will do whatever it takes on the monetary policy front uh, to achieve that. Yeah, and I think the action the central banks are going to take, that's what's really going to drive asset class performance over the next year, potentially not the macroeconomic outlook, which is positive, but it's actually the intervention that, that they take. So that kind of leads us on to views on specific asset classes, so equities, bonds, credit. 
Yes, I mean, I, th I think that's right. I think the point you made there is that what m the monetary policy makers do will impact markets is the central point, is that monetary policy works, basically, and monetary policy is incredibly important. So if we go back to last spring, um, when, of course, equities were, were almost half, half the level they are now, in some markets anyway, uh, and bond yields were depressed. Um, central bankers stepped in and loosened policy, pos policy massively. Perhaps the lesson for us going forward is if anything like this happens again and you see monetary policy being loosened massively, then uh, uh, even if the economic outlook looks pretty uncertain, then perhaps you should just be buying buying risk assets. But, mm. but that for another day, and hopefully we won't have another crisis like the one we've just mm. had. Um, but I do think that, that the Fed uh, is likely to be raising rates next year. Um, they're under increasing pressure, uh, given the, the increasing rises in inflation, pick up in inflation expectations, both in the bond markets, but also household inflation expectations, uh, which have been going up. And that I, I'd be surprised if they accelerated their taper plans, uh, but they might. Um, but I certainly think they are likely to be uh, raising interest rates next year. And I think when we get the next Fed dot plot, uh, uh, more of the Fed members, or even all of them, well, or close to all of them, uh, will be indicating rate heights next year. Um, mm. The Bank of England also going to be raising interest rates in December, as appears most likely. I think the ECB is a long way from raising interest rates. Um, but a long, a long way doesn't mean never. Um, but the ECB pretty unlikely to be raising interest rates next year. Um, and and I, can't, I, you know, I don't really have a forecast for when Japan will be raising interest rates. Um, but I think that in terms of what it means for asset prices, I think for bonds, I think uh, uh, central banks will be raising rates more aggressively than priced into markets. Uh, and that leads to upside risk for bond yields. In terms of equities, it's a lot more tricky. Bonds, in a way, are, are, are easy. I say that as a former bond fund manager. But, but bonds, in a way, are easy because there aren't so many things you have to think about. In terms of equities, uh, the one thing that's incredibly supportive for equities is corporate profit growth. And corporates have grown their profits at an exceptionally rapid rate over the last 12, 18 months. And it's been much, much stronger than everyone expected, given what was going on in the economy. And I think I think corporate profit growth will slow, but I think it's going to remain pretty decent if we're right about a decent economic outlook. So that's a real tailwind for equities. But the two or three probably headwinds for equities um, are potentially powerful. And I say potentially. The first is the bond yield bit. If bond yields go up a bit, then I don't think that's a headwind for, for, for equities. If 10-year treasuries, which as we're speaking today, are at about 1.6%, if they were to rise to 2%, shall we say, by the end of next year, I don't think that's a problem for equities. But if they were to rise to 3%, uh, which is not our, not our expectation, but is certainly possible, then that sort of level might start to become a serious headwind for equities, because all of a sudden equities look pretty, you know, don't look cheap relative to bonds. Uh, valuations more broadly are a worry for equities, particularly in the US, where it's expensive on many measures. The key one where they're not expensive is relative to cash and bonds, which brings us back to the importance of bond yields. And the third one is signs of froth in markets, in that uh, I remember the late 90s, I worked at an asset management firm, and I was on a daily basis getting emails from people saying, buy this, it was a terribly exciting technology company, um, and uh, it was going to go off to the roof. 
Um, and then we've seen all sorts of signs of froth over the last, I say 12 months, but really particularly over the last six months, uh, whether it's the meme stocks, whether it's anything to do with electronic, uh, electric vehicles, um, cryptocurrencies beyond. There is a lot of excitement out there, a lot of good news that's priced in. Um, and if something goes wrong, whatever that might be, um, then I think uh, equities are vulnerable to outflow from, from speculative flows. So our view on bonds is unambiguously bearish. Our view on equities is, is sitting on the fence, uh, is, is holding fire for now. Uh, if the inflation uh, uh, spike does prove transitory, then equities might push further higher. But I think it's best to wait and see on mm. that. Uh, yeah. in, relation to, in relation to credit, credit spreads are tight. Um, uh, and normally that's a pretty good indicator uh, that returns won't be that great going forward. But we do think that defaults, downgrades are going to be quite low. Any business really that has survived the last 18 months will probably survive the next 18 months. Uh, and therefore, we think defaults, downgrades will be pretty low. And therefore, credit will do OK. We'll, we'll, we'll probably earn its additional, additional yield. So quick summary, equities, we are neutral. Bonds, we're bearish for long-only investors. And then... Credit, I think it's a relatively benign market we're entering, given where spreads are. So where are the bright spots? You know, how are you going to be positioning portfolios to etch out returns in what could be quite a challenging environment? Well, as you know, you know that our central focus at Mercer really is to get the strategic asset allegations right. And so we focus a lot of our time, uh, and indeed it's a lot of what you do, Ema, in your role is focus a lot of your time structuring portfolios so they are able to withstand whatever happens. Because of course, someone like me goes out and we make our, our forecasts, our expectations. But the reality is, uh, of course, is there are a huge number of unknowns and unforecastables. And we want portfolios to be positioned so that if something nasty happens, then, then client portfolios are okay. Of course, mm -hmm. you, you know, you, you, you can't, if, if you're going to take any risk, things, you know, may go wrong. Uh, and so you can't position portfolios so that they are always uh, in, in uh, always going to perform brilliantly, but you can protect them against certain things. And so we're advising clients at a high level uh, to be protecting themselves against further unwanted uh, moves higher in inflation. Uh, obviously, the ESG piece that I, I, I obviously we can do this one in a different podcast. It's important that uh, clients are positioned um, uh, for, for, for climate change um, and adjust their portfolios. On the tactical side, um, I think uh, you, you know we have over the last 12 months uh, been heavily overweight high yield. We've also been overweight equities, um, but more recently we've been we've been pairing that back um, because of the issues we've just raised. And so, on a tactical basis, uh, our main risk position is underweight duration. Um, but of course, over the next 12 months, uh, things will happen. We don't exactly know what, but things will happen. Uh, and so we've got a bit of, um, you know, uh, uh, gas in the tank, as they say, uh, to deploy uh, if, an, if, if opportunities arise. Yeah, and I think this kind of market environment really does lend itself to more absolute return strategies as well. So there's definitely a role in the portfolio for a lot of clients. Um, I'm talking absolute return fixed income or diversified growth funds that where, you know, managers have the ability to go both long and short, depending on, on their views on the environment. 
Yeah, I think overall total returns of returns of most things over the next few years, not necessarily the next 12 months, but of most things are going to going to be a little bit disappointing mm. and certainly relative to what we've seen over the last, you know, last decade. So the last decade has been about the best ever for a 60-40 portfolio. Um, and given starting point valuation, bond returns you know, are, are going to be poor, um, mm. but equity returns are also probably not going to be great. So, yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've seen some commentators. I know we wouldn't be as bearish, but some expect maybe over the next three to five years that equities might be flat. Yes, I don't think, you know, we, 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 we sort of, as you know, we don't do sort of spot forecasts. Um, uh, and I think we wouldn't necessarily be that bearish, but there are some good charts you can see on uh, 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 charts people have produced looking at CAPE values, so CAPE, K-Shiller, P uh, uh, ratios, uh, and then relative to that, subsequent five-year real returns or subsequent 10-year real returns, which essentially show a pretty obvious point that if you buy equities when they're cheap, chances are they'll you'll do well. If you buy them when they're expensive, chances are you won't do so well. And those mm. sorts of uh, relationships suggesting that over the next five to 10 years, equities will return sort of, you know, small positive in real terms. So yeah. better, the, better than cash, but, but you know, less well than uh, what they've done over, obviously, the last 10 years, but also less well than what they've done on average over the last 100 years. Yeah, and, and I think you need to look at what they've done over the last three years. So some developed markets have, have doubled, as you know, like the S&P 500 is has doubled in three years to October. So, you know, you, you do need to ask yourself as an investor, how much further are they going to go or how can I diversify to navigate a relatively challenging market? So I think we do need to touch on COVID. So COVID risk to the outlook on the macro side? It's still there as a risk, but I think as a risk, it is diminishing. So, so one of our colleagues, Julius, who, who, who you know, told me the other day that he'd looked up on Bloomberg, he'd typed top on Bloomberg, and it pulls up the 30 top stories. Um, and for the first time in 18 months, COVID wasn't one of the top 30 stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think as a health issue, COVID obviously is going to be hugely important uh, for some time to come. I've got my booster jab uh, coming up uh, in in a week. In fact, I was going to have it today, but I changed it because of chatting to you. But uh, booster jab coming up, and it will be a massively important health issue um, in many parts of the world. Uh, And of course, some countries are less well vaccinated than than others. So it'll be a big uh, health issue. I don't think it will be a huge... Uh, uh, economic or market issue. I think the likelihood of widespread lockdowns is 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 reasonably low. We've obviously seen the odd lockdown happening uh, tentatively in some parts of Europe recently, um, but I think widespread lockdowns are unlikely. People who have the vaccine feel pretty relaxed about life. Um, people who don't have the vaccine, uh, for whatever reason, are also perhaps by definition carrying on their life as normal. So I think that the, the, the vaccine rollout, uh, plus we've also seen some positive news from Pfizer and Merck on, on treatments, um, I think will all mean that as an economic and market issue, uh, it, it, it will fade. Um, but of course, the risk to that is some very violent uh, 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 variant. Um, that, that, that changes things. Again, that's I, I, I think 
I think companies as well have pivoted a lot in their strategies. So even in a partial lockdown or full lockdown scenario, I don't think we'll see the same economic shock as we did 18 months ago because people have looked at new ways to create revenue, even small businesses kind of operate in a partial lockdown setting. So yeah, I, I agree. I think the risk is there, but it's not our one of our top risks that we're seeing. I think that's right. And I mean, one of the things from COVID is there have been big winners and big losers, um, and much more so really than coming out um, of a normal recession. So even the great financial crisis, when you when, when we came out of the great financial crisis, the goal of policy really was to get us back to where we were, uh, get us back to doing the same things in the same way um, with slightly better technology. I think coming out of the this health crisis, um, lots of things have changed, uh, whether it's flexible working, whether it's business travel and, a, and, and, and anything really to do with technology. Uh, and all of that, I think, is ultimately a, a positive. Mm. And thinking about sustainability, so this is a top theme for a lot of our investors. <laughs> we are, COP26 has just closed, we're in November. I think the energy transition debate is fascinating. So trillions of dollars will need to be spent on the global economy to decarbonize. So how do you think that will play out in a macro perspective? And what should investors be thinking of to benefit from these returns? Well, I think, as you say, it is going to be massive. And it's worth noting that there is a difference between GDP and wealth. And so closing and, you know, coal fired power stations and so on uh, leads to a loss of wealth. But the investment in the new technology doesn't lead to a loss of GDP. And so there will be some losers who are holders of legacy assets. But for the global economy, I think it will be a positive for global economy, as both governments and the private sector uh, invest heavily, not just over the next 12 months, but over the next um, 20, 30 years. And I think the one thing that get, doesn't get spoken about a lot is that ultimately it will be good for the global economy. And that even, and obviously the motivation for it is to uh, uh, reduce the impact of the climate and climate change worries. But if that, even if that didn't happen, even if uh, global warming hadn't taken place and everybody was perfectly happy uh, with, with, with fossil fuels, um, then I think the transition would take place anyway, because ultimately uh, producing clean energy and the infrastructure, all of it that goes with it, is going to lead to much lower energy prices um, than if we stuck with fossil fuels. So mm -hmm. my guess is, is that in 20, 30 years time, real energy prices are a lot lower than they are now, which is great for the economy. Um, but ultimately, it requires a lot of upfront investment. Uh, and that upfront investment is going to be happening, is going to be happening, happening now. Uh, again, it will lead to winners and losers. Um, some of players in, in, in the listed space, some in the, in the alternative space, um, will be well positioned for that. Um, but I think it will make it just will make a big difference. There'll be you know lots of opportunities for for good stock selection um, for those businesses that can uh, uh, a change their business models and business plans uh, or be or be startups. And we know with what we've seen in a range of well, obviously Tesla being the most obvious example, that mm. that businesses that can position themselves uh, uh, to benefit from these changes can do spectacularly well. Yeah, and I think on the private markets as an asset class, 
it also really supports the rationale for holding that in a wider portfolio for a lot of investors. So locking away your capital, benefiting from that illiquidity premium, but then also the focus on sustainability. So be it an impact strategy or an infrastructure strategy. You know, I think that's potentially, well, it's one of my favorite asset classes, but something that would benefit from this energy transition, but also prevent the market noise impacting clients' portfolio as much. Yes, and 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 the amount of money that is going to be required to build the wind turbines, the uh, the solar panels in, in other parts of the world. I've never quite, I, well, I'm not an expert on this, but it seems that the UK is very well positioned for wind. I'm not so sure about solar, um, but, 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 but I'm not an expert. But so apologies. is Ireland. I can, I can confirm Ireland also is. Okay, apologies to anyone if, 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 if that's wrong. But um, there's, gonna, there's gonna need to be a huge amount of investment um, and policymakers will ensure uh, that 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 those who invest can can you know can can generate a decent return, um, and so I think that you know for a long time to come uh, there will be good opportunities there. Great. So I think we're nearly at our time limit. I was going to ask about Brexit, but potentially we'll 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 leave that to the the next session. I'm um, sick of talking about Brexit. I, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> It's as if it never happened. Um, So quick summary, we're positive on the global economic outlook. Asset classes, we're neutral on equities, negative on bonds from a long only perspective, credit benign. We do feel investors should be positioned to act dynamically to take advantage of opportunities as they arise, potentially look at more absolute return type strategies and also private markets could be suitable for investors' portfolios. Uh, exactly right. And the biggest risk to everything being monetary policy, particularly in the mm. US, uh, but, but but globally as well. Exactly. So Rupert, thank you for joining me today for that whistle-stop tour of the market outlook. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. To our listeners, as always, thank you for listening. Today, we touch on some of our views for the outlook for 2022, but if you'd like to read the full report, go to the link in the podcast description or reach out to us at Mercer, either by contacting your local representative or you can contact us at ctci at mercer.com. So thank you, Rupert. I enjoyed that immensely. So I look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions.